Welcome to Devotions in the Deep End. I'm Cam Buchanan, and this is a carefully crafted devotional journey through the New Testament. Let's venture into deeper water as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in the world we live in now. Welcome back to Devotions in the Deep End. This episode is going to look at some teaching from Jesus as he responds to some interesting circumstances. The passage we'll explore is found in Mark chapter 3, and we'll read for starters from verses 20 to 22. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So it appears Jesus is beginning to become a source of perhaps embarrassment for Mary and her other sons. His teachings were challenging to say the least. And although he was being received well by the general public, it seems his earthly family, particularly his brothers, were not so enthused. Mary definitely knew her firstborn son was special. She knew he was there solely because of the miraculous work of God. But at this point, she may be wondering if things were actually going according to plan. Had he missed his mission somehow? Had he taken a bit of liberty with the power that he knew he held? The other brothers really didn't agree with who he was, and it wasn't until after his death that they came to faith. Perhaps they were making a bit of sense to Mary at this time, and Jesus was in fact going a bit mad. Surely getting the religious and political elite offside so quickly didn't seem like the best way to lead a nation to glory. This event would be taking place just 30 kilometers from his hometown of Nazareth, and we're told the mother and brothers have made the trip across to try to talk some sense to him. The passage actually says that they came specifically to take charge or take hold of him. The Greek word used here was the same word used to describe Jesus being arrested at the end of the Gospels. In other words, his family were coming with the hope of forcefully removing Jesus from his current place, most likely thinking they were saving their son and brother from himself. Then, as if that wasn't enough, some religious moral police have made the trip from Jerusalem and have knocked on the door at the same time. Jesus has actually been in action for about 18 months or so at this point, so his reputation is certainly getting out there both for what he did and what he said. Behind closed doors, the word being thrown around is blasphemy. That's an old word that means to speak in a profane or sacrilegious way about God or sacred things. And in their time and place, this was a capital offense. The inescapable issue these leaders had to grapple with, however, was just how much miraculous stuff he was doing and how many lives were actually being changed by the touch of this apparently untrained rabbi. In their backroom deliberations and chatter, they were looking for ways of dismissing and explaining away these things. And the strange conclusion they'd reached was that this was all somehow the work of Satan himself. Specifically, the name they give this demonic force is Beelzebul. This means Lord of the Dwelling, and it's a mixed understanding of a pagan god and the work of the evil one. But Jesus clearly understood what they were trying to say as he responds to them. 
As the scribes enter Capernaum, this was their story, and they were sticking to it, telling the crowd to stay away from Jesus because this was a bad, bad man. It's with all this going on that we now come to yet another parable or illustration from Jesus to answer his critics. And we need to engage deeply with this because it's a really strong statement about himself and his deity. The critics are calling Jesus mad and bad, but he has another view altogether. Let's keep reading from verses 23 to 30. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Here's Jesus' response. No, scribes. No, mum. No, brothers. I am not Satan, and I am not at war with myself. A split kingdom, a split family, a split organization of any kind will crumble. It will implode. It will come to nothing. There is more going on here than that. Jesus is essentially saying that their evaluation of him is really off base. Their Messiah wasn't going to come in the packaging they thought it would be and wasn't acting in the way they anticipated. And the best approach these religious teachers could do to try to stop him was to try to take away his spiritual mystique. By claiming his work was demonic, it could throw seeds of doubt to the crowd and get people back to the hardened path of their religion. The trouble with that approach was simply this. Jesus wasn't demonic. He was the author of their religious focus, and his response makes that suddenly very clear. The scribes quite correctly identified that Satan has some power and that it could be transferred in such a way that humans could have some of it for a time. Ancient sorcerers operated that way for a time before it usually totally destroyed them. They could pull a crowd and they could do things to amaze them. But Jesus makes some pretty strong statements here that lets his audience know that he was not like that. First, he asks a rhetorical question to the crowd. Name one person who is stronger than the devil. The outcome of that question could be a mixed one down in my local main street today, but it could only be God to that audience. He then makes the claim that his work is binding up the strong man. He is tying down Satan and plundering what he possessed. In other words, the hearts that the enemy was stealing away were being forcefully taken back through him, the one who is stronger than the strong man. The task that only God could do was being done by Jesus. The second thing he says here is much more ominous. These scribes were treading a very fine line, and if they continued to pursue this mindset, it could take them down a path from which there would be no return and no positive outcome. What was so bad that Jesus had to take this tone? Was it their doubt? Well, if this was the problem, then Thomas would have been in for a rude awakening when the risen Jesus appeared to him. 
Was it their questions? Well, if we look at Scripture, we see that sometimes hard questions led to great discussions, which we have in print today. If Nicodemus hadn't come questioning, we wouldn't have an understanding of being born again out of the discussion that followed in John chapter 3. Was it their unbelief? Was it their blasphemy of him, their slanderous words spoken against him and their poor treatment of him? Again, if blasphemy and even killing him were unforgivable, Jesus wouldn't have prayed otherwise on the cross for them. Father, forgive them. No, Jesus had something bigger in his eyes to address than even all that for these hardened religious folk. His warning could be read a little like this. Guys, you can see the Holy Spirit at work. And you can affirm that lives are being touched. Yet all you can do is speak profane and sacrilegious things about what you see. As godly people, they were supposed to be in tune with what the Holy Spirit was at work doing. The Holy Spirit was clearly present in Old Testament theology and vocabulary, in prophetic promises and in presence. David pleaded for the Holy Spirit to not leave him, and the presence of God was tangibly present all through Old Testament scripture. Yet, by the time Jesus came on the scene, there were only rules, and lots of them, and no spirit awareness. They didn't know the Holy Spirit's work when they saw it, and when faced with his undeniable power and presence, they wrote it off as demonic. Such people, people who could pursue that mindset, were beyond saving. Not because God would not but because the people locked in this thinking were no longer able to be drawn to God. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us and draws us to the love of the Father. It's the Holy Spirit that reminds us of the things Jesus said, and it's the Holy Spirit that guides us through our faith life. If we can look the Spirit in the face and consider Him demonic, then none of that drawing, convicting, and reminding will occur, and we will wind up completely lost. Forgiveness will elude such people because they are no longer in a position within themselves to seek it. This was the grave danger of the religious elite that day. So Jesus reminds them that he is bigger than the devil and that the work of the spirit that they see before them is indeed from God. And they were in the presence of one that was stronger than the strong man. In their minds, only one person fitted that bill. And Jesus did not shy away from that conclusion. So instead of a madman and a bad man, Jesus presents as the God-man. And as we keep reading, we'll see one more image of him to consider. Let's read verses 31 to 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus makes a huge step of alignment with his disciples here. The ones who would follow him. The ones who would seek the sovereign will of the kingdom of God. These would become a strong, united family. And Jesus will align himself with them in the strongest bond known to man. In Paul's letters, we see these family ties and their blessing expanded a fair bit. 
In Romans 8, Galatians 4 and Ephesians 1, we are spoken of as adopted and made sons and daughters of God through Christ. In Romans 8, we are referred to as co-heirs with Christ in the kingdom. Jesus' promise of being a family man to us has far-reaching and eternal rewards, ones that far outshine the earthly family ties that we currently know. So let's reflect together with this. There are two things we can take out of this passage. The first is an analysis of whether or not we've committed the unforgivable sin. Believe me, that question in church circles is far more common than you might think. The simple answer to that is this. If you are listening now and wondering whether you have or haven't, and if you've been seeking God to find out if you've done something that God can't actually forgive, then chances are pretty strong that you haven't actually done anything of that magnitude. If you are still seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit and allowing the Lord to search and expose your heart, then you've got nothing to worry about. In fact, many commentators will go as far as to say that this is a pretty impossible sin to commit given that Jesus is not physically on the planet to accuse in such a way. But I do see some caution here. We live in a time where expressions of Christianity can be quite varied. We have a traditional and a conservative end, and we have a really ultra-Pentecostal charismatic thing going on as well. Experience tells me that the Holy Spirit can be at work in both those extremes and everywhere in between. I believe that we would be wise to not get too caught up in analyzing or critiquing the validity of the Holy Spirit's work in some of those arenas. For example, many decades ago, it was common in my Baptist tribe to suggest that the charismatic gift of speaking in tongues was actually demonic. I can report that this is mostly not the case today. In recent years, moments of charismatic revival have come under intense scrutiny and I believe people can draw potentially dangerous conclusions out of it all, particularly if it differs to our own experience or theology. We need to be really mindful at all times in this area. The last thing I personally want to do is look the spirit in the eye and accuse him of being something different altogether. But the overall picture of this text is more along these lines. Following Jesus means not being Switzerland. In other words, there is no space for neutrality in the kingdom of God. One writer said this, to see and hear Jesus was to put oneself into the dangerous situation of having to choose. And that's clearly what Jesus calls disciples to do all the time. The truth of the matter is this, Jesus came with a very deliberate purpose. It was a deliberate plan of redemption, which would need a very deliberate act of sacrifice that he alone could accomplish. It was also a deliberate plan of establishment, where a kingdom would be inaugurated and this deliberately redeemed people would be a deliberate expression of this kingdom, a kingdom which will be seen partially now and in all its glory on the other side of eternity. So with all this very deliberate stuff going on in the ministry of Jesus, there was no space for political correctness or keeping the peace for the sake of avoiding trouble. Jesus was a highly polarizing person in his time and continues to be today. So the matter of choice continues to be an ongoing thing for all generations. This passage highlights a number of conclusions that guys like C.S. Lewis have made famous. In his book, Mere Christianity, he wrote this well-known passage called The Lewis Trilemma. He says this, 
I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Liar, lunatic, or truly Lord. In simpler terms, Jesus is either mad, bad, or God. And to engage with his teaching means choosing which one you believe he actually is. If he's mad, then disregard all that he taught and follow somebody else. If he's bad, then get as far from him as possible. But if he's God, then join the family. Attach yourself to him and his other followers in the powerful family sort of way. Take advantage of the family ties that Jesus offers, the spirit of adoption and the promise of being a co-heir with him in the kingdom to come. He was so committed to this family that anything earthly, including his own life, would be laid down for the sake of its welfare. The way we join this family and step into this place of privilege is to simply align ourselves with God's will, even if it comes at the expense of our own. Can you walk with the attitude that says it's what God wants first and what me wants second? Can you take your personal senses of ambition, validation, achievement, power, and even your future and align it completely with what God has to say about all those things? If the answer is a resounding yes, then you will fit the bill of brother, sister, mother, and family in the eyes of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To stay in touch, like our devotions in the Deep End Facebook page and subscribe on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I look forward to catching up next time.